Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages. Thanks for joining us in this special episode where we revisit some of the conversations I've had in the three-year life of the podcast. It's been my pleasure to sit down with some of Australia's leading ladies of musical theatre to discuss their beginnings, their process and hear anecdotes from illustrious careers. I hope you've experienced that same delight in joining us in these episodes. It's been a unique year, it's fair to say, so here's my treat for you. A potted episode where we return to snippets of chat recorded over the last three years with 12 extraordinary women who, I hope, you have had the opportunity to experience Downstage Centre. My first guest on stages was the magnificent Tony Lamond. She returned to our microphone to celebrate episode 100 of the podcast. She's a woman of firsts. She was the first woman to appear on Australian TV. She was the first woman in the world to host a television variety show. And she was the first woman to lead an all-Australian company when JCW mounted the Pajama Game in 1957. Here she is recalling that show and the opportunity it provided for many Australians. We also get a taste of what her character song, Hey There, sounded then and now. Stunning. Well, Fred Hebert must have had quite an eye for talent because in that company, there was Tony Lamond, Jill Perryman. Tiki Taylor. Tiki Taylor, Kevin Johnson. Yeah. Um, They had somebody else playing that... um, that uh, role that uh, Jill Perryman played. Mabel. Mabel. And because uh, Jill was 19 and somebody else would play and she wasn't cutting it. And then um, the he went to JCW and they said, oh, we, we haven't got... There aren't too many um, middle-aged uh, actresses um, who can sing... And uh, it was Fred that said, "Well, what, this this girl, but but she's only nineteen. She Jill was the understudy of Mabel, and uh, they said she's only nineteen. And and the director said, "I'm a director. I'll direct her to be." And she, of course, was brilliant in the and it brought her to the fore. But as I say, it was six years until she got in her own right. And who played Heinze? That was Keith. Keith Peterson. Who was an who, old vaudeville star, wasn't he? Who was, he'd been in, he'd worked with Max and Stella. He'd worked with my parents, yeah. Did you have a favourite moment or song in the show? Oh, Hey There, yeah, of course, music. yeah. Always had your pride 
But I, I loved every minute of the show. It's a great show. I don't know why it hasn't oh, been revived. But, um, and of course, Doris Day made the movie of it and made it world famous. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. Love never made a fool of you. You used to be. Too wise. Won't you take this advice I hand you like a mother? Or are you not seeing things too clear? Are you just too far gone to hear? Is it all going in one ear and out the other? Thank Bravo. <laughs> Oh, what a treat! That's that's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. yeah. It was it was. I loved every minute of it, and we played. You know, we used to go over to Perth and everything. You know, Big Sydney, tour. Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth. Didn't I mean, get to Tassie. Poor old Tassie. Poor old Tassie. Had, they had out. to come to the mainland. <laughs> Jill Perryman is now retired, but for many years carried the mantle of our greatest leading lady. Equally adept at dramatic roles, comedy, and possessed of a voice of terrific power and nuance. Her legacy includes definitive performances in Funny Girl, A Little Night Music, The Boy From Oz, and as Miss Hannigan in Annie. girls everywhere I turn I can see them little girls little girls night and day I eat sleep and breathe them I'm an ordinary woman with feelings I like a man to nibble on my ear but I'll admit no man has bit so how come I'm the mother of the year? Little cheeks, little teeth. This conversation took place in Perth, where Jill and her husband Kevin, dancer-choreographer, now reside. It was a delightful afternoon of reminiscences with the couple, who have appeared many times on the same stage. Here they recall a moment in Annie when Jill as Miss Hannigan, Kevin as Rooster Hannigan, and Nancy Hayes as Lily St. Regis were overcome on stage by a fit of the giggles. Annie must have been fun, Miss Hannigan oh, and Rooster Hannigan. Yes, you were. Fun. You actually were brother and sister then, yes, weren't you? Well, we were yes, and Miss Hayes with Shirley Lily St. Regis. She Lily was St. the one that rang us about yeah. you, and I said, Shirley, because we rang her about opening night. You know. A haze at the haze. Yes. It's a yeah. fantastic show. Well, I told her I time. wanted to speak to her. I said, is that Shirley Munch? She said, yes, of course it is. I said, well, I want Miss Munch to keep an eye on Miss Hayes for the day, please, because she must make sure she paints her nails nicely for the opening and make sure she does two plies at least. And she said, I will tell Miss Hayes. <laughs> Who so was Shirley Munch? We were the Munches. We passed ourselves. Oh, we passed ourselves. That's a famous scene with us because we had that worst breakup ever, ever on stage. And the three of us, the three of us, 
What, Unbelievable. What triggered that? We well, just we still don't, don't know. know. We, we still don't know. know. It was one of those we things. Laughed. And she, we laughed. Miss, Miss Marge, Miss Nancy, didn't have to say much. And this one's doing a lot of Miss Hannigan. Miss Hannigan's you know, <laughs> hiding. The I, don't, I can remember. I can remember. I yeah. used to say, I walk through the door dressed as old man Marge, and we had the old yeah. couples coming to say where the parents are at. And I used to say, I know the line, excuse us, ma'am, are you the lady that runs this here orphanage? And I went, excuse us, ma'am, <laughs> the lady. I don't know why. Nancy and I didn't have a joke before we went on. And this one said, yes. And we proceeded. Miss to Hayes do the dialogue. Very oh. quietly in the background. And I said, just a bit, Shirley. She went, <laughs> and we had to sing. Reprise. <laughs> the poor audience still to this day don't know what that... And that's all about us passing ourselves off as Mr and Mrs Mudge and his parents. But the poor audience... They think, oh, that Kevin we and Jill, they, they so must drink. Oh, we were Kevin so Johnson was notorious for ticking the orphans off. Right. I was notorious. Don't you break up on stage. Oh, I bet they... Oh, we didn't. We didn't. We walked off stage, the and three of us, sobered immediately. immediately. Really? As we walked Absolutely. through stage and we went to our rooms we went, and it couldn't shock. talk to each other. It was, it was agony. I don't know what we did. It's a real scare, I guess, well, for future terrible, performances, terrible. isn't it? Yeah. Well, yes. No, it never happened again. Yeah, no, no, it never happened again. No cinema today is in the crisis. Directors are so existentialist. Continue. I want a musical. Love cannot be love without the singing. A string, a clarinet, a saxophone. Take a lesson from this old Parisian hand. The finest entertainment she has known. Nancy Hayes is an eternal presence on our stages. She just concluded the season of a play with the South Australian Theatre Company. Her big break came with Sweet Charity in the 60s, and she has delighted us forevermore in many of the commercial musical fair presented through Australia. Nancy played the role of Lillian Lafleur in a magnificent production of the musical Nine, directed by John Dietrich, who also played the role of Guido Contini. Here, Nancy discusses how the role came about and how she managed to juggle it with the role of Nellie Lovett in Sweeney Todd. You were in a show in Australia, which I still call one of my favourite nights in the theatre, Nine. Ah. Oh. That was a great production. Wasn't it? Yeah. I was doing um, Guys and Dolls. I'd known John, of course, for many years. John Dietrich. John Dietrich. He came to see me when we were in Pippin, and he said, will you come and see my uh, production of Minnie's Boys? And he, his sister was starring as Minnie, and he was Groucho. He had this great lineup. He had all the. I, I don't know how he pulled it off, but it it was a really terrific production. It was just up on Eastern Hill in a in a church hall, so I went to see it on the Sunday, and I thought, oh, this boy is really extraordinary. And uh, then I followed him over the years, of course. Big so, hit with Oklahoma. A big hit with yeah. Oklahoma, and if he'd done um, Gershwin, uh, which was a 
had with John O'May and Caroline Gilmer and Natalie Mosco. And then they did one called um, 20s and all that jazz, yes. I think. And uh, then he went, to, I think it was then that he went to London. But he came to see me during Guys and Dolls and he said, do you know a show called Nine? I said, yes. He said, I'm going to get that produced. Are you interested? And I said, I am very interested. And uh, I'd seen it in New York in 1982, I think it was, yes. In fact, a few of us were at that performance because I didn't know anything about Nine. I'd gone to an International Theatre Institute gathering in the south of France where Honey um, Coles and the Copacetics were teaching tap. Alan J. Lerner was there um, teaching lyric, lyric writing. writing. It was, an, it was sitting in a place called Bizier, gorgeous. And we went out to this chateau every day in these buses and they sprung the floor of the barn and they had the American dance machine teaching. They had the tap guys, they had you, you would do classes all day, whatever your interest was, and then in the evenings go go back, have a shower, have, and come back again, and, and the people that were teaching you would perform. It was beautiful. It was really lovely. And the, one of the, because I was much older than the rest of them were there, they were all young students, and came from Australia, my God. Anyway, um, they said, you can get a really cheap ticket to New York. They said, you go to Brussels and you go up this, up to, you'll see this place and it's upstairs and you get a ticket. So I was travelling with my friend Judy Ferris, who'd been great mates since she worked at Menzies with me. And she was very much involved with Ensemble and the beginning of Ensemble. So we found we had this avenue to, to go away. And we went, we went over to France and of course she said, well, let's go to New York because we had friends we could stay with. And that was when we saw Nine because we weren't even expecting to be there. And it was just a beautiful show. It is glorious. Yeah, glorious. So that that was exciting that he got that happening, and uh, I could. But I but I could only go in when he spoke to me. I'd already been signed for Sweeney. And I said, "Gosh, John, I, I could, I, I, I've got to do that." He said, "Well, I don't know how it's going to go." So he said, "Would you come in and do it for the six weeks, the rehearsal period, and then the six weeks?" And then I said, "Well, it's that ro any role, but particularly Lillian." could be a cameo role and you could put whoever into it. So that was the deal. And of course it, it was very well received. And then Val Lehman was going to take over and she got ill. The she'd, be, she'd be big in prisoner at that time, I suppose. Oh yes, yeah. very big. And was going to do a very different type of Lillian to me yeah. because I did it more as the dancer type Lillian. And she was going with to- With a great long boa. With a beautiful yeah. long boa, yeah. yeah. Um, and then that weekend, Jill had come over to do a morning melodies for Pounder down at the Arts Centre. And she came to the show on the Saturday night and came back and she said, oh, she loved it and the whole thing. So then I, I go off to do, they farewell me with a lovely signed poster and the, the closing night gift and everything. And I go to start rehearsals for Sweeney on the Monday and Gail gave us this great pep talk about having to get it done in three weeks. And we just all had to knuckle down and just you know, don't cut any corners, just get straight into it and the whole thing. At lunchtime, I get a phone call from John saying, oh, Nance, Val's can't go on. And your understudy, who was a little French girl, gorgeous, who helped me enormously with the accent, became so traumatised by the thought she had to go go on, she put herself into hospital and she would, 
was comatose for some reason. I don't know how she took them into it. But there was no one to go on. And he said, do you think you could fly back after rehearsals tonight? We'll have everything ready for you and do tonight. And I said, oh, gosh, I said, I've just had a big pep talk from the director about how we, she can't spare us for a minute. So anyway, I went and spoke to Gail and she looked a bit shocked. And then she said, well, I can do without you till Wednesday. I can cover till Wednesday. So I got back onto him and indeed I was flown out of Adelaide and I actually literally walked through the stage door. Nobody spoke to me. I walked straight to my room, got into the costume, walked onto the stage and went, la, 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 la. And wow. I was there. And then Jill, um, something, um, I don't know why Val couldn't come back. I think she'd lost her voice. I think that, what it's, I can't remember now, but I said to John, what about Jill? And I spoke to John. She said, oh, and I have to ask Kevy. <laughs> I said, do you tell Kevy that you've got to do this? So anyway, um, another girl went on who sort of knew it, Penny. I can't think of her her last name, Conrad Helfrich's wife, Penny. She uh, held the fort when I went back and then Jill came into it the week later. Wow. Mm. And then because it was such a success, I came back and did the... After Sweeney. After Sweeney and did the end of the Melbourne season and then Brisbane, Adelaide, Sydney. Mm. Well, some of you. So that was a lovely show, all those girls. Yeah, how exciting. Yeah can be a bit tricky with a lot of girls. I can imagine. Different temperaments. Different yeah. temperaments. But, no, but they all loved the show. Yeah. And it looked, I mean, Roger Kirk did beautiful, mm. beautiful costumes for that. We all felt great. Yeah. Caroline O'Connor has navigated a career that has seen her conquer Australian stages and those of Broadway, the West End and Paris. I sat down with Caroline shortly after she'd returned from a triumphant turn in Anastasia on Broadway. 2018 was a huge year for her, and it didn't look like slowing down in 2019. In this selection, she discusses maintaining her fitness and how she goes about preparing for a role. Let's look at the past year. It's been an extraordinary year. Um, You finished up a run in Anastasia Anastasia on Broadway, Mm. Um, then you did The Rink in London. You're back in Australia doing Funny Girl with the Symphony, Boy From Oz with the production company, Candide with the Philharmonic, and your own show, Caroline O'Connor from Broadway with Love at Angel Plays. Do you ever get tired? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I said to myself, this affair... No, I said to myself, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take... I think I'm going to take a year out, is what I said, uh, while I was in New York. I felt like I deserved it because I had This work. is heading towards the end of Anastasia. Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden these things came up and they all seemed to slot so beautifully, which doesn't always happen in our business, that I couldn't help myself. And also I thought, well, I'd get me home for a while um, to Australia and see my fam, see my mum, for instance, and family. Um, and just worked out that it was the right thing to do because, you know, sadly I lost my mum, so I was around. But... Um, then my friend said to me, there's no way on God's earth that you're going to take a year out. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll do six months then. I'll take six months off just to give myself a break and just clear my head and Recent, eat uh, what I want and, you know, have fun and move houses and do whatever I want. And, of course, that hasn't happened either because, I don't know, ever since I've come home, things have started to crop up. Work's, you know, about to start. I start another show on the 7th of January. I start a play, The Rise and Fall of Little Voice. And then mid-year I do a tour of La Scala to Broadway. 
and then at the end of the year next year I'm doing Kiss of the Spider Woman so everything's sort of that that time off is is not sadly not going to happen so maybe I'll have to do it the following year take a break it'll come well people say to me you'll never take a break but I, I would like to I think it would be good for me I think it would be healthy well I, just picking up what you're saying then you know you can eat what you like you know you're looking forward to that so when you're working I, I've been doing that lately actually just on a strict sort of diet and performance oh, rage craft. it depends on the role absolutely right. yeah. you know like for instance now I'm about to do this play and I'm playing this middle aged sex craved you know sort of alcoholic character and and you know for me to go out there looking like a racehorse would just be totally inappropriate <laughs> although when I did Chicago you know that was my intention I, I went to see I went to a nutritionalist and I was you know as people know I was so incredibly fit there was no question but also I was a woman of a certain age you know compared to a lot of the rest of the cast I was in my late 30s and so I worked bloody hard to get that body. And then I did the show again 11 years later and I had to do the same thing again. I had right. to get myself back in that shape. And it's very difficult um, when you're older to do that as well. So the eating is a big deal when you're doing a show. Anything goes to, I had to get very fit for that. Um, but there is a regime and you have to be strict with it if you want your body to look like that for certain roles. And yeah, I mean, I don't suppose as I get older that'll be as, as much of a requirement you know, uh, as it was before when I was dancing, because there'll be less dancing roles for me, obviously, as I get older. Yeah. Um, speaking of the roles, I mean, the, your CV is quite exhaustive um, <laughs> and, and it would be the envy of any leading lady. Uh, listen to this. Anita, Anna, Aldonza, Lola, Cassie, The Witch, Miss Shields, Mrs Lovett, Reno Sweeney, Velma Kelly, Mabel Norman, Mama Rose, Fanny Bryce, Phyllis Rogers Stone, Ali Mae Chipley, Sarah Jane Moore, Hildy Esterhazy, Countess Lily Malevsky Malevich. Yeah. That's that's quite extraordinary. Um, it demonstrates enormous range and also um, each of those roles requires different demands. Yes. How do you prepare for a role? I love that part actually. I like the research. Uh, I really do. I, I don't. I think it was because of it was because of Mac and Mabel that I realised how important that was. I knew beforehand, but I didn't know as the responsibility of playing a person, especially when they're a real person. That responsibility is enormous, and I think that's why I got into the research thing. And so of course, if you're not playing a real person, then you have to develop something, some characteristics or something. So yeah, I I actually do quite a bit of work before I start. And I ask a lot of questions, even if they're stupid questions, obvious questions. People might look at me and go, oh, she's so stupid. I want to know absolutely, you know, who I'm playing, where she's from, what, you know, e e well, everything. So um, I'm lucky with the next one because I was born only 20 miles away from where this character uh, is based. Uh, I was born in a place called Oldham in Lancashire. So I, I really should have had an accent like this, to be honest with you. I should have talked like... Coronation Street. So I'm lucky that I've got that yep. already. I'll have to investigate the, the heavy drinking side of it. <laughs> <laughs> and the sexual, you know, sort right. of side of it. But yep. I, I, I do love that part of it. Um, I'm just thinking that often there's a lot you can read about. Like, for instance, when I was doing Anastasia, that is a fictitious character. I was the only one probably of all of them that was probably not really a real character. The others were. So... I observed, you know, what was going on around me and just developed this character depending on what was on the, on the page. 
Marie Johnson was back in Australia for summer when we recorded this conversation. She was also taking a break from performing in the Broadway production of The Phantom of the Opera. Marie plays Madame Giry. She was, of course, one of our Christines in the premiere season of The Phantom in Sydney. Sadly, this year, she has experienced what COVID-19 has meant for the Broadway community. We send her much love and a speedy recovery for theatres around the world. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a juggle, you know, and I'm trying to maximise any bit of time I get with them, maybe to go see a basketball match or if they're home early for some reason that day. It's not the it's same, like, but I guess you can do FaceTime as well and from the theatre or perhaps or... Oh, yes, but I'm flying in there. There's not not enough time. Yeah, all right. Throwing on my makeup. (laughs) Uh, Were your folks happy about a career in the arts? I think so. When they saw, you know, the the level of professionalism and and the career, and it just kept gathering steam. Absolutely, yeah. Well, the career in Australia certainly did gather steam. I mean, starting with Les Mis and then Phantom of the Opera, which she did for, what, two or three years? Yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. And then um, Grisabella in Cats, um, Eliza in My Fair Lady, Maria yeah. in West Side Story. You're playing some iconic roles. I know. Yeah. Isn't that great? I'm so What lucky. a gift. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite role? Ooh. It's a silly question but, to ask yeah, any actor, really, really, isn't it? Hard. It's, it's what you're working on at the time, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. And they're all really good. Eliza... You know, Maria, they're all different. And they're all incredible women, incredible young women on a journey. So, And they're all just different. They're all really good for different reasons. What, all, yeah. what do all those roles teach you about being a leading lady? Responsibility, yeah. um, technique, um, focus. Oh, my God, so much. <laughs> Hard work. Yeah. You know, but in, you've got to, because you love it. It's and effectively, easy. you're leading that company as well off stage. Um, you're modelling behaviour, so. I guess, to a degree. I didn't quite realise that then, but yeah, I guess so. I, I recognise that more now, uh, being one of the older, you know, performers in Phantom. So yeah, I, d- I definitely do. But I'm not really there to tell people how to live their lives no 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 but no. maybe through example you know but professionalism could, yeah. yeah professionalism mm-hmm. are companies different in australia and the u.s from your experience not really no it's the same breed yeah of musical of theater people and that work ethic and, is yeah, there. Yeah, yeah what about yeah. audiences do they differ do you think they're a little more on their feet i feel in the states yeah you know they love an encore and a standing ovation so that's always lovely. We always get a standing ovation. Yeah. Um, those those uh, iconic roles we just talked about are huge vocally. How do you mm. ensure that your voice is in peak condition? Do you- oh, technique. I think that's where I really notice now that my technique is is good and it's held held me, you know, strong. Although after a while and getting a little bit older, you do have a certain amount of muscle memory that goes into the role. So anything outside of it, I'm finding, oh, I have to just focus a little more and prepare a little more and, you know, make sure I warm up and practice it more. It's, you know. Do you have periods where you don't speak? No. To risk the voice? No. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a busy day for some reason. I guess um, even though the kids are at school, they're not always at school. There's just random days off and then there's just um, other things I'm 
doing and seem to be organizing and New York is such a busy place you know you walk out that front door and you walk down the street and you've already said hello or had a conversation with five or six neighbors that you've bumped into you know have you continued the singing lessons during a show no I haven't not but I'm about to pick them back up actually so funny you should ask because I'm two and a half years in now and I feel like oh I think I need to go and explore some other material and see what my voice is doing outside of Phantom. Keep you engaged with your voice, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially being older, you know, I don't need to be the high, sweet soprano anymore. So I'm mixing more, I'm belting more. So, you know, I need to explore that. And more characters, you know, I have a more character voice as Madame Giry, in a way. Have you found that the voice has got lower as you've got older? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But the height's still there, which is good. Yeah. Do you have a favourite composer? Oh, Stephen Somebody Sutter. you like to sing? Yeah. Stephen Sutton, Jason Robert Brown, uh, Pasek and Paul. Really love their new work. Um, oh, like them all. And then, you yes, know, we've got to usher in Rogers that new, new, yeah. the new guard now. Yeah. I mean, that's, those songbooks will yes. always be around, but, you know, with the, the passing of Jerry Herman recently and, mm. you know... Sondheim, mm. let's hope it's not for a while, but he's sort of nearing 90 and all that I sort know. of thing. It's well, a, he was at Hal Prince's memorial the other day and he was in, gave a beautiful speech. So, What was that like? Because Hal Prince, of course, died in 2019 mm-hmm. um, and the memorial was at the, the-, the Majestic where you're doing Phantom. Yes, yeah. So you got to be there? Yeah, yeah, yeah we were there. Did you perform at all? Or? No, no, no. I think what was, uh, you know, we were so lucky to have... How for the past couple of years and he would come in periodically and give notes and see the show and he was so sharp and so on it and so supportive of everyone in the show so we were so lucky and I think we lived in a little bit of a bubble thinking you know we had Hal just for us and it was phantom but Hal had this enormous career you know this epic career so the memorial was very much a tribute to everything else that he'd also done as a producer as and a, a director exactly yep. yeah yeah and as um a mentor too to other composers such as jason robert brown who was conducting so it wasn't there was just a little bit of phantom you know yep. it was all i ask of you and then it was everything else so and there were so many people in his life that he'd you know bonded with and you know directed so who who performers who become dear friends and so many different stories so the cast of phantom were definitely a part of that but we weren't we're not everything of his career no. of, you know and i think sitting there was that was very poignant and it was like oh of course how beautiful how wonderful and i imagine it was a house full oh my god it was yeah. amazing yeah and the performances were amazing, young and old and new and, yeah. Because it was open to the public as well, I think, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it was not advertised necessarily. Yeah. So it's word of mouth. My next conversation was a real treat. As a fan of My Fair Lady, I'd always wondered what had happened to the actress who played Eliza Doolittle in the 1959 premiere production of My Fair Lady opening in Melbourne. Her name is Bunty Turner, and she was imported by J.C. Williamson's to play the coveted role throughout Australia and New Zealand. She eventually concluded the tour in South Africa. Bunty is vivacious, generous and charming. It is very obvious in this conversation where she recounts opening night 
and her working relationship and friendship with Googie Withers and John McCallum. Well, My Fair Lady opened on Broadway in March 1956 and, and J.C. Williamson's acquired the Australian rights yes. at that time, but it took two years and the expenditure of the equivalent of $2 million before Good it gosh. debuted at the match. Good God. So On the 26th of January, in a record heat wave and there was no air conditioning. Yeah, yes. But I, I, I think after that evening, it forced J.C. Williamson's to put air conditioning in. They did? Yeah, yeah. They did. What do you remember about that opening night, other than that? I remember heat? being absolutely petrified because it was probably the worst um, uh, opening night that you could imagine because uh, while Biff Liff, who was directing us, who we absolutely adored, Sam Liff, Sam Liff or Biff, his name is. Right. Yes. He was. He assisted Moss Hartman. He came. Out, he came over. He yeah. came over to represent Moss Hartman and direct our, our company. And he kept saying, save your voice, save your voice. Bunty, I can't hear you. So I had done rehearsals and I wasn't experienced enough to say, no, I'm saving my voice. Because you were so 22, weren't you? I was very raspy, yes. 22, yeah. I was very raspy. A, day before, a time night. before radio mics. Before radio mics and very little um, mics at all. You really, I didn't speak all day. Right. I just saved my voice for during the, the four during the season. During the season. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I remember about opening night is that Googie came with a bottle of champagne and she knocked on my door and came in and locked it immediately. And she said, we're just going to come down together with champagne. And we drank the whole bottle before we went to the party. Oh, brilliant. Googie and me. After the curtain came down. After the curtain came she down. She was the most wonderful woman. Oh. She was very precious to us. I did an ideal husband with her, too, with oh, John. I saw and I saw them do an ideal oh, husband with oh, my brother right. in London. Oh, I went right. with my brother yes, to yes. see them doing yeah, yeah. doing it. That was lovely. Um, and um, there was there was a, an afternoon tea scene, and fruitcake was being used as a prop. And uh, the stage manager announced one day, "Whoever's taking the fruitcake from the fridge, please remember it's a prop." Do not do it. And I was standing there, Googie, at the time. She said, I'm married to the producer. I'll do what I, I, do like. What I like. I like. I can just hear her say it. I'll do what I like. <laughs> um, so those, those men that you were cast with, you know, we're talking Michael Dennison and Robin Bailey and Kenneth Laird and, and indeed the great Stuart Wagstaff came out to, yes. to Australia to do. No, he didn't. He came he was, out he to do... In. He came out to do... I can't remember. Guess who's coming to dinner, I think. Right. Um, and then he was in Australia when he auditioned for understudy to, to, to Robin Bailey. And played Zoltan Kapathy. And played Zoltan Kapathy. Yes. <laughs> that bad Hungarian, was yeah, he the, there? Yes, he, yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> so what were those men like? Did they treat you well? Were, were, oh, were good wonderfully. Yeah. I was, I, I A bit like uncles? Any... <laughs> I, d I never had any... Yes, I think so. They were quite protective of me, I think. Um, yes. Yes, and I was just thinking how lovely it was um, when we got up to Sydney and, and, and there was Nicolina Rawson. I think I, you know... This, oh, yes, you told me that earlier. Really. Tell me that I story. Did. So, Mr. Well, McCullough I like it. I like it because it sort of brings me up to date because... Um, 
uh, Nicolina was, I think, 15 when she auditioned for My Fair Lady. And was cast in the ensemble. And was cast in the ensemble. She was a dancer and she was very good indeed. And um, she um, wanted to travel up to Brisbane and Mrs. Mrs. Um, Ralston, her mother, said, no, not unless you shared with Bunty. And she had an apartment and I said to John McCallum, well, I don't share with anybody. I just don't speak all day. I don't share an apartment. Um, and he said, oh, well, that's a sad because Nicolina won't be able to tour then. So, of course, I relented. The time changes and I have a grandchild. And at the age of three, Nicolina is running her own school by this time. Wow. The Academy Ballet. Ballet school. And she says, at two and a half, she says, don't be ridiculous, Bundy. And then at three, she said, oh, all right, bring the child in. So I brought Anya, and Anya spent the first, you know, 10 years of her dancing life, 12 years of her dancing life with Nicolina. Isn't that a wonderful and serendipity? Absolutely amazing. Yeah. My only grandchild. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And she's... Um, I don't. She she's six foot, so it's unlikely that she'll be a dancer. But um, but that's extraordinary for for the producer to ask the leading lady to uh, to room with her. Well, but it's also understandable. It's also, it's very much John sort of being a father figure. That's and what he was. Will you look after this young I girl? I mean, I yeah. suppose now it would be called paternalism. Yeah. But in those days, I I just think we expected it. Hmm. Um. I remember that he warned me off the first man that I fell in love with in Australia, which was Athol Smith, who was a photographer. And John wrote me a letter saying that Athol is, is, has quite a reputation with women and you must be careful. And <laughs> but I absolutely adored Athol, so yes. I paid not the slightest attention, but... But, but well, it was so those days. This wouldn't happen today. No, 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 no. The Absolutely. producers wouldn't cross the line like Not that. But I guess all. he was looking out for his product as well, because if you'd fallen in love <laughs> and had your mind otherwise, then the show might have suffered. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Lisa McCune is a graduate in musical theatre from the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. However, it was television where she found her first successes. Several Gold Logie Awards and Triumph playing Maggie Doyle in Blue Heelers made what the next project following her departure a considered one. Producer John Frost presented the opportunity to tackle one of musical theatre's most endearing leading ladies in one of musical theatre's most endearing shows. Here Lisa discusses delivering the role of Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music and the extensive canon of musical masterpieces created by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Then, then it is. You just try to be, you find your own difference within that. Well, you spoke earlier about John Frost uh, approaching you for The Sound of Music. And mm. I believe you had five reasons why you should do the show. And one was that you would kick yourself if you didn't challenge yourself in front of a live audience in a lead role. Were, yeah. were you daunted at taking on a role like Maria? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's so iconic. I remember saying to Robin Gardner, um, I, I don't know whether I'm, this is a disaster. I mean, I, but I think Frosty's really smart. That's the one thing that he knows how to cast a show. And he was, you know, it, it was the right casting at the right time. And um, it was my first job stepping away from Blue Healers and you couldn't get anything more different. And, um, and it didn't backfire. I remember I had a clause in my contract, though. Um, I'd only signed on for Sydney for three months because I thought I wanted them to have an out and I wanted it an out in case it had backfired badly. 
Um, but it was a beautiful, beautiful production. Susan Shulman, who we're lucky enough to get if we come out of COVID and they still um, can schedule it, is coming back out to do Secret Garden again. She's a beautiful director. And um, and that was and Frosty's given me the exposure to work with some international directors, which have been um, really wonderful experiences for me, you know, working with um, Susan Shulman and um, Bart Scher on South Pacific and... Um, and, you know, that, that exposure has been really valuable to me. I've really enjoyed working um, and doing Ian Grandage's production of um, Guys and Dolls and meeting with Sam Mendes very briefly to do Cabaret. I was there on opening night of, of The Sound of Music and uh, you were absolutely stunning. That, that moment that you made your first entrance on the mountains at the start, Sound of Music, you had arrived like this uh, most accomplished leading lady. It was fantastic. Oh, that's so sweet. I remember we, we toyed with it. You know, there was a ramp that I ran down. I remember standing backstage and I was, Maria runs down this ramp and um, Susan Shulman and I, um, we added the jump over the fence because, wow. you know, physically I could do it. And it was just, it was so cool. I mean, I loved, that was a, that, that for me was the moment that I thought that's, that's, that's that girl, you know, and, um, yeah, and that was a really big moment for me. I remember the end of that performance getting through and just and surviving the what is it you can't face Maria moment on stage with Eileen <laughs> thinking. And the crowd went nuts, of course I did. But, um, you know, it was everybody was so generous to me that opening night in Sydney. I just felt like the crowd knew that um, it, was a, it was a big step out of a comfort zone and they really wrapped their arms around me. I don't think I felt it to such a degree ever as that first night. You've, you've done a couple more with South Pacific and, and The King and I. Mm. They're great roles. Any other Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals you think you might do? Oh, I'd, I'd love to do any Rodgers and Hammerstein. I love I love doing their music. And how beautiful is, you know, those those very simple melodies that you remember, one, uh, you know, one listen and you've got that melody in your head. I mean, that's clever writing, but when you put an orchestra behind it, even though it's, you know, not a you know, the orchestras might not find it to be as amazing as a, you know, a grand opera. It's a it's a very beautiful sound, like that beautiful lush opening of South Pacific. We'd stand backstage every night and just go, oh, that sounds so beautiful. Um, but I love Rodgers and Hammerstein and, um, yeah, I, I would absolutely do anything. But, of course, I'm getting to an age now where, I mean, I could, I could still do Anna in The King and I, um, but really I'm in that transition time um, moving into some very different roles and there's so many beautiful young performers coming through. It's really thrilling. I, I love seeing, you know, all of this talent that's around. Um, it's good. Well, hopefully we'll see you in, in a carousel at, at some point. Oh, I'd like to do, but what what part would I do in Carousel now? I would, see, they're, they're the roles that I missed. I think I would have been a great Eliza. I never got to do Eliza. Oh, yeah. And would, I actually would. do think I would have done that well. Um, so I was a bit bummed about Eliza. And and the other one is Carrie. I would have loved to have done um, done that role. Very beautiful role. Beautiful show, Carousel. Oh, my gosh, isn't it stunning? Yeah, I and, think it's their best um, score. Yeah, oh, it's so divine. Maria Mercedes spoke candidly about growing up and the discovery of a voice that would propel her into a succession of great musical performances. 2020 also provided us an opportunity to discover Zoom, and several of my conversations were managed through this platform. Maria joined me from Melbourne and reflected on the vocal demands of the roles she's played, especially that of Grizabella, the glamour cat, and the tragic Norma Desmond. Maria, during research, I don't know if you've ever pondered this, but can you answer this for me? Um, 
What do these four women have in common? Elaine Page, Betty Buckley, Deborah Byrne, and Maria Mercedes. Well, we've all played Grizabella, haven't we? Yes, and you've all, all played Norma Desmond. And we've all played Norma Desmond. Yes. How's that for a club? That's so not a bad club to be a, part of. That's a very good club <laughs> indeed. But, but what does that say about the voice? There's obviously some sort of... Um, vocal quality that's required for both of those roles. I mean, and they're both composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course. I think if, if, we, if he had kept the, uh, the score uh, as he originally wrote it, and, you know, um, Paddy Lapone played Norma Desmond originally, yeah. uh, I don't know whether it would have suited my voice as much as it did later on when Glenn Close played Norma and so the keys were changed, the keys were dropped and so I think it, it, it was a better fit for my voice uh, and for all the other actresses as well that, that played Norma. Silent music starts to play With one look you'll know All you need to writes the way he writes um he really wants the, that voice to tether on it could it could break at any moment he he really loves that danger he loves to hear that danger in the voice and that danger was also evident in love never dies um with madame giri when yeah. she comes out of that pod uh at the end of act one and that last note that that I have to execute, that is right on the brink. You know, you have to do it in your chest because that's the only way that you can execute that danger and that drama, I guess. He's a very clever writer. He's been criticised a lot, but I think he really, really knows how to, how to write for the female voice. Poor old Grisabella. And I told him, I told him. Yeah. Plain as anything, I said, Andrew, I have to say that Sunset Boulevard has to be my all-time favourite of everything you've ever written. He said, it's my favourite also, but it's been my least successful. <laughs> <laughs> Generally the way, isn't it? <laughs> Always, yeah. Poor old Grizabella's on a downer all night and, and, of course, Norma Desmond's in a state of hysterics all through the show and, and Madame Giri's a bit of an introvert. I mean, is it tough to play a character, play those characters with such emotional states all night? I mean, are you able to just throw that off at the end of the night or do you carry a bit of it with you? I think with Cats is a hard one. That, that really um, used to disturb me a lot playing Grizabella because unlike the other characters, 
um, who are on stage most of the time. Uh, the role of Grizabella, she kind of comes on and off and she's very secluded most of the time. And uh, I've heard this from other actresses who've, who've played um, who've played Grizabella that it really, really unravels them. And I felt that at the time as well. And also having to sing that iconic song and making sure that, you know, you hit that touch me, it's so easy to leave me. Um, I, I developed a thing. I, I was petrified to, to go out and sing that number night after night because I knew people are waiting for that, for that soaring, you know, section of that song. Rachel Beck made her professional stage debut at the age of 15 in the Australian premiere production of Cats. Since then, she has, of course, gone on to play a succession of great musical theatre roles in shows as diverse as The Sound of Music, Ordinary Days, Cabaret, Next to Normal and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Rachel is great fun and a font of wisdom in acknowledging the perils and joys of a life in the theatre. I missed out on because I went down to do Cats. Right, well, which brings us, it's a lovely segue, Thank you. about parents encouraging their children. Mm. I assume that you're, you're, even though they were teachers, they saw the passion that was ignited in your soul, mm. so were happy about you pursuing a career in the arts. Mm. Uh, so much so that at the um, age of 16, was it? 15. 15, you're a little bit younger, so you're 10. <clears throat> you go down to Melbourne to do cats. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um I completed my school certificate by correspondence and I went down and lived with somehow I don't know how mum and dad found the names of one of the girls who was also in the show who was 17 her parents she'd moved she was moving out to live with some other people in the cast and her parents didn't have any other children at home so I stayed with these two people I'd never met I didn't know anyone in Melbourne um but then we found some distant cousins as well who remained very close to me. But at that stage, I didn't know anyone and um, started rehearsals with Gary Ginevan and all of these. So was this the original people. company, or did you? This was the original. This was the original company they'd already done Sydney. Right. And then they went down to Melbourne with most people. Laura didn't go, right. so I took over. So kind of recasting. And I don't think you know. Um, a lot of the kids today who are doing shows realise just how big Cats was. Oh, I mean, that it broke was, the mould. It broke the mould mm. for all sorts of reasons. Mm. You know, it was said that this show would not move from Sydney, so people from all around Australia and New Zealand mm. um, flocked to Sydney to see the show. Yeah, um, exactly. It was the first sort of uh, ticket price hike, I think. Yeah. You know? The first show that came out into the audience as yes, well. Yes, that immersive experience yeah. again. It was, And Cats <laughs> was very much the star, the, the, the show, yeah. you know, and, and the set too, I think. Mm. Um, even though it had all of these great Australian musical theatre performers mm. uh, in the company. But, exactly. But it was huge. It was. It was, and it was, and it was so successful for such a long time. You know, it ran and ran and ran and so many people have played those roles in Australia, mm. which is brilliant, and New Zealand. All yeah. of the tours and tours upon tours. Uh, and I think that... It really is a show, mostly a, a triple threat show, because you did have to sing well, you had to dance really well, and you know you did have to act and and embody those characters. So, 
for its time, you had to be highly skilled mm. to, to play those roles, for sure. And extremely athletic and fit. <laughs> I don't know one person who's done cats who doesn't who hasn't got a lifelong injury. Like a bat like their their back's pretty bad or yeah. they've got sore knees or they carry something from from that show. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Well, for, for, well, for a lot of performers, especially dancers, it's at RSI. You know, you're doing a particular move every night, and some of those choreographers can get you to twist into all sorts of positions and and miss Julian uh, Lynn. So yeah, you did with that. Yeah, uh, she did. Were you the youngest cat hmm. in the in the company that it had in been in the world? In the world, really? Ever? Because you auditioned at the age of thirteen, and I they said, did. "No, thank you. You're yeah, probably a little said, bit young." Well, no, they actually said, "If we find another girl who's thirteen when we do our auditions, we'll let you share the role." I was an acrobat as well. Right. So they then then they said no we didn't find someone who was who was able to share the role so they just kept calling me calling me back. Wow. Then in the last audition I went old enough. Mungo Jerry. <laughs> Rumple teaser. Donna Lee has experienced enormous success on club, cabaret and musical theatre platforms. Her stage roles have included Dames at Sea, Les Miserables and Oklahoma as Ado Annie. Her mum was the great Gloria Dawn, and here Donna reflects on the immense talent and gifts that her mother delivered to audiences. Now, before you mentioned your wonderful mother, the legendary Gloria Dawn, and, you know, people do still speak about her today. Oh, I and, love that. Um, and various performances that they saw her in. Perhaps not the, the younger generation, but that's mm. why we're doing interviews like this, so that they, they can learn. But um, what an extraordinary woman. People listening, have a look at YouTube. There are various clips of Gloria Dawn in her element, and she's sensational. And I was astounded by the wonderful gimmick she had of, of whistling. I know. That is another thing that's um, disappeared. It's very old-fashioned. But um, it was something that was... Oh, look, I remember being a little girl, and she used to sing a song called Pedro the Fisherman. And some of the lyrics are, Pedro the fisherman was always whistling down a, a, upon the stream or something. Well, I feel guilty that I don't know those words. But I remember how uh, going from one of those really bright um, f- songs that would make you feel good, like something like, oh, you met someone who set you back on your heels. Goody, goody. It's one of those old-fashioned feel-good songs. And she would sing those and then she would finally, in her act, uh, talk about Pedro the fisherman and sing about how he would go down to the to fish and he would always whistle as he did it. And, and then, of course, in the story of Pedro the fisherman, he passes away. And often people still go down to where he used to fish by the sea and they could always think that they could hear the ghost of him whistling his songs and she would whistle in a way that would bring tears to your eyes because you you could hear that she would be able to change that whistle into a, a, a an instrument that would make you cry like violins do sometimes or, uh, but then in the next breath she'd use that whistle as <laughs> sounded like a no, well, that was extraordinary. Was. She, she goes into a, a whistling break, and yes, it's like an instrument. She mm. could be playing the clarinet yeah. or a saxophone mm. or, or something. It's quite extraordinary. Mm. Quite extraordinary. That's old-fashioned. The, the, those things of all, lots of those things don't um, don't get a look in anymore. But um, 
you know it is great to see it all and and see how we've evolved and but those sort of performers did not come through institutions those poor performers learned it on on the job the job mm. and that's where i think that if you survived you were pretty good you know mm. because if you if you couldn't survive um and and get through it all well you shouldn't have been there i suppose in 2020, Rhonda Birchmore celebrated 40 years entertaining audiences. The succession of variety and stage work was revisited in her YouTube series, Rhonda Rewind. In our stages conversation, she recalled working on the musical Sugar Babies and some of her co-stars, which included Gary MacDonald, Mickey Rooney, Anne Miller and a team of pigeons. It's, um, I did a, my thing was I had to be like this uh, glorious uh, uh, statue in a in a Greek garden and doing a burlesque uh, kind of strip of the the veils I guess and as I'd re- remove a veil I had a live pigeon fly in and perch itself um, as I removed the veils I had all the arms you know they were the chorus and then I had uh, titty one and titty two they were the the features and uh, the head ones and then the special the big the big clo- the big you know, yay, was Fanny Bird. And, uh, yeah, that, that would perch on my crutch. And uh, as I would sing like a Julie Andrews version of, uh, you know, show me that you're warm and willing. And it was was highly camp. It was hysterical. It brought the house down um, because you would never know where the birds would fly on any particular night and what they would do. Love is for the warm Waiting for the woman within Love is ours to take or toss aside Take this promise to your heart And let your lips repeat Kisses are too sweet to be denied Show me that you're warm and willing Make each golden moment thrilling Give my empty arms a welcome sign We can make the stars go spinning And the earth stand still If you're warm and willing to There you go. Well, I used to go to, um, <laughs> to bird, cl- bird training classes after my normal rehearsal and uh, learn how to train these incredible, uh, my little feathered friends and uh, yeah, that that was a real highlight. That number and uh, and as I said, they'd be in these cages. I don't know if they could do it these days because of you know animal cruelty. I'm sure they couldn't. Not that they were cruelly treated, but they were in these uh, a kind of little um, like a, a huge cupboard was built side stage where all the doors would be released and the birds would fly off one by one. And um, sometimes you know during depending on the month. Um, they would get very, um, they want to fornicate. And the only time that they would be able to fornicate was when they were released out of their little cage onto my head. <laughs> so um, it was, yeah, I'd have as many as eight on my head sometimes doing this as I was uh, trying to sing Warm and Willing. So, yeah. It would be If you're warm and willing to be mine 
Fanning or not? One like, yeah, um, Fanny Bird, the, the, the most, you know, celebrated feature of my act. Um, the poor little thing, she rocketed in for the big finish and she started crawling up my leg and then she dropped. And then she'd crawl up again and then she, 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 she got to my thigh and then she'd drop. And then um, the, the band would just kept on kind of rallying this kind of big finish and then only to find out that they finally closed the curtain. When they'd released her, she was about to, you know, lay an egg. So um, the poor little thing lay an egg at my feet. So that's why she couldn't make it to my crutch. I'm sure she's not the first bird to lay an egg. On the Majesty's <laughs> stage. <laughs> and I'm sure not. <laughs> Later uh, that year, I think it was, you joined the London Company. Was that the premiere production in the West End or were you going into that? Yes. No, no, I was... Um, uh, Mickey and Anne had done it on Broadway and, uh, yeah, they, they did it. Uh, it was the same creatives. They'd seen me in Australia and then they invited me to go to, um, yeah, to the Savoy Theatre, in fact. What a thrill. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, pin I pinch myself now, even, you know, uh, 40 years later or whatever, you know, uh, 38, uh, you know, to, to, to have had the opportunity to, to work with two of those legends I'd seen, you know, as a kid growing up on, on my telly screen, you know, uh, to be working with them and uh, amazing. My dear friend Geraldine Turner was guest number five on the Stages podcast back in 2018. So popular was the episode, we got her back in series two. She is one of our great leading ladies, demonstrated by performances in Chicago, A Little Night Music, Anything Goes and Oliver. Here she is recounting the beginnings of her career working with J.C. Williamson's and the influence of Betty Pounder. So I just want to ask you about uh, Betty Pounder. Right. Now, Betty Pounder, of course, was the uh, creative who put a lot of shows into Australia from J.C. Williamson's. J.C. Williamson's, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and what Pounder used to do was she'd go to New York and she'd see the show for a few, I don't know, a few times, write down everything in code and come back and she'd... She'd chore she'd re choreograph everything the same as she she saw on Broadway, you know. So they didn't ever have to bring out an mm. assistant choreographer or anything because Pounder was it, you know. So it was still, you know, of course the, the original Broadway choreographer's name was on the the show. Yes. But Pounder did it all. So yeah, she had a real talent at that and a talent at sort of seeking out people, I guess. And I'm very happy that I know that people like Tony Lamont, Nancy Hayes, Joe Perryman. Of course, Sheila Hancock. Um, Bradley. Bradley, sorry. Sheila Bradley. As soon as I said that, I thought, no, not Sheila Hancock. Sheila Bradley uh, all grew up with, in that J.C. Williamson's era, Gloria Dawn, of course. You know, all of those women and had great careers from J.C. Williamson's. Um, uh, Tony Lamont being in the first all-star cast pyjama game, you know, because before then they cast Americans in those roles and Nancy getting that lead in Sweet Charity which was a big deal back in those days Jill Perryman getting Funny Girl you know usually before that they would have brought out a star from America so they all had those opportunities and I came in at the tail end I guess of JT Williamson's I mean I did two shows I did No 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 Net and uh, when I was 21 and played Betty from Boston and uh, that's when JT Williamson's was 
um, Edgley Williamson. That you know, there was a there was a uh, Michael Edgley bought into the company or whatever. They had a sort of right. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. was then. But JCWs too were just a sidebar. They were they were the firm. They were the big commercial producers in Australia. Absolutely right. And you went everywhere by train. You didn't. You know, it was you went everywhere by train and you had to dress up and everything. It was fun. <laughs> um, you'd arrive in a you know in a city and they the press would be there, a bit like those sort of. Photograph those things in those scenes in Funny, Funny Girl, Girl, yeah, yes, in the yes, movie, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, that sort of thing. It was a bit like that, um, yeah. So I did No No Nanette, and which of course starred Sid Charisse, and then later of De Carlo. So I've worked with both those women, which was fantastic. And Jill Perryman was in that show, of course, and I understudied Jill in No No Nanette. So that's the only one and only time I've ever understudied anyone in my life, and um, I never went on. She's never sick. I did do a dress rehearsal in Sydney. She had a cold and they were worried about it and gave her a day off and I did a dress rehearsal. But, um, and I think, I, you know, I was far too young to play the role, but I think I, you know, made great shakes of it. And I think from that I got offered um, a, a Petra in a little night music. I shall marry the miller's son In my hat on a nice piece of property Friday nights for a bit of fun we'll go dancing Meanwhile It's a wink and a wiggle and a giggle on the grass and I'll trip the light fandango a pinch and a diddle in the middle of what passes by It's a very short road from the pinch and the punch To the paunch and the pouch and the pension It's a very short road to the 10,000th lunch And the belch and the grouch and the sigh In the meanwhile There are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed was of course I think a watershed moment for me in my career because although people had noticed me as Betty from Boston one of the three girls in No 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 Net when I played Petra it was like a standout terrific part and I got to sing The Miller's Son every night. The 11 o'clock number? Yeah, well I is guess it, the 11 yeah. o'clock number is arguably Send in the Clowns. Oh of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um I didn't sing that but um yeah yeah but a big fabulous number in Act Two. And, you know, greatly placed in the show. And uh, that's where I think people went, because people still say to me to this day, they saw that show and went, who is that girl? You know, because I was this girl with the big voice and, you know, all of that. And we didn't have radio mics in those days, you know, okay. so just a few hidden mics or shotguns along the front of the stage and you had to sing out, Louise. So, of course, I could sing out. So, yeah, I mean, when you think about it now in musical theatre, you know, there was no... There was no room for nuance or, well, a little bit of nuance, but not much. No room for intimacy, you know, no intimate moments because you had to sing over the orchestra. Mm. Mm. So, so Pounder put uh, night music Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was the original Hal Prince production. That produ- it opened Her Majesty's Theatre, the new Her Majesty's in 1973, November 1973 in Sydney. Of course, Her Majesty's is not there anymore because mm. we pulled down theatres all over the place in, in Sydney. Sydney yeah. um, was she a tough task- taskmaster? 
Yes, although friendly as well, and a, you know, a very nice woman. She had this fabulous flat, she and her husband, on um, Alexander Avenue in South Yarra, I guess. And uh, it was a kind of like a 1920s, I guess, or 30s, rounded with this big rounded kind of terrace. And she had a secret room, like she'd open this door and you'd go down this spiral staircase into a studio. It was fantastic. God, that'd be worth gazillions now. No, no. Did she ever do that. anything of herself originally, or was she always just? I um, think she was a showgirl. Right. Yeah, and then became. Maybe she got too old to be a dancer and but got a job with the firm and didn't direct her own stuff though. No, 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 no. It was nothing like that ever. And and I saw, you know, I remember I remember being at a party during night music and um, I don't know, was it someone's house or after show party or something and. I remember somebody offered me a second or third drink or something and she said you and I remember it clearly she said you better watch out I'll take you off my star list fantastic I know <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that um, <laughs> what a delight it has been to revisit these conversations I hope they've brought you some joy at the end of what has been a very tough year for us all. The full episodes are still available in the backlog of The Stages podcast. Just search through the platform where you listen to all of your podcasts. We're heading towards the final episode for this season. That will be episode 175. Can you believe it? It's a very special Christmas episode that will drop on Christmas Eve. My co-host for the show will see the return of Kate Fitzpatrick. Our guests will be Rhonda Birchmore, Brian Castles Onion, Ron Crager, and Geraldine Turner. We'll have some Christmas music and much Christmas cheer to reflect on the year of stages and much more. We all need a little Christmas, and this will be the perfect addition to your Christmas Eve. Stages will be back uh, in March of 2021, taking a break over the summer period. I look forward to your company then, next Thursday, Christmas Eve. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, 